Welcome to episode 14 of Lady Fiction, which turns to indigenous erotica and native body sovereignty in North American uh, literature and culture in the month of November 22, which in the US is designated Native American Heritage Month. I'm honored to welcome as my guest today, Dr. Savage Bear, a member of the Montreal Lake Cree Nation in Northern Saskatchewan and the director of the McMaster Indigenous Research Institute at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. At the University of Alberta, Savage Bear was assistant professor for Native Studies and Women and Gender Studies and the director of the Indigenous Women and Youth Resilience Project. She also worked as academic lead on Indigenous Canada, a MOOC or massive open online course that was designed by Indigenous scholars with help from knowledge keepers and elders. This course is trailblazing in various ways, but most importantly, I think, is its amazing outreach. To date, this free open online course has been taken by over half a million learners educating people from Canada and from around the world about Indigenous Canada. I was fortunate to witness Savage Bear's teaching in another context at the European Summer School for Canadian Studies, which was held this summer at the universities of Innsbruck and Vienna in Austria. And I'm still thrilled that she agreed to appear on Lady Fiction. Welcome, mm -hmm. Savage. Danse. Uh, it's really great to be here. Thanks. It's nice to see you again. I agree. It's great to continue our conversation here. I'd mm -hmm. um, like to start by acknowledging a little bit my own bubbliness when it comes to hosting you and uh, my own bubbliness when it comes to talking about decolonizing sex. While I like to think that hopefully my discomfort doesn't emanate from the sex part, I think it might be the indigenous part. So um, as a scholar of North American studies from Germany, I sometimes struggle to find a good position for talking about native and indigenous cultures in North America. In short, I approach the material when I teach this very differently as an educator, but also as a possible accomplice in the coercion that is colonization, because I teach it in an American studies or Canadian studies course. I'd like to start by asking about your understanding of the field and about the possibility of uh, solidarity in the teaching experiment of this. First off, thanks for having me on this show, Lady Fiction. I love the title of it. For those of you that don't know where I am, I'm, I'm not in Austria right now. I'm in Canada, what's now known as Canada. And I, I'd like to do a, a bit of a land acknowledgement. I am Cree from Treaty 6 territory in Canada. There's uh, 11 numbered treaties in Canada, and Cree people live mostly in Treaty 6 territory. But right now, I am actually in Ontario, in Hamilton, and at the University McMaster. So McMaster University sits on land protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. And I am a guest on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Haudenosaunee nations. This territory was never surrendered. 
It was never ceded. And further, the crown has ignored and reneged on many nation-to-nation treaties. Settlements and promises of these treaties remain unfulfilled. We stand with all the Indigenous peoples of Canada who defend their territories, lands, and waters. So I am a guest on this territory, but I am coming to you with an open heart to talk about some exciting uh, topics, at least exciting for me. So your first question, Stephanie, was about the field. Is it the field of Indigenous studies particularly or a specific field in Indigenous studies? I think it's, as a scholar of American studies or North American studies, it's always a question of how to address that uh, Indigenous presence that should be awarded national status of its own, but as you just said in your land acknowledgement, hasn't. So... um, it's complicated coming to this in an American studies course that I, you know, I let, you know, that I'm, I'm made to teach to German students who also have courses in British literature, Shakespeare, and other courses. This is an institutional question um, at the beginning of this podcast. And uh, I wonder how to turn the tables on that national question in the beginning, maybe with a land acknowledgement as you just did. Maybe also by, by acknowledging the embodiment of uh, teaching and our own look across the pond mm-hmm. <laughs> at uh, this culture and acknowledging the institutional bindings in the German-speaking university and uh, the history of the discipline. And this is uh, kind, of, kind of improvising on, on what you just told me. But as an educator in Indigenous studies, what, what are the... What are the fields that you focus on? What What is important to you? And what would you have me as an American Studies scholar communicate to students? I think it's really important, especially outside external to Canada. Our Indigenous people's history with Canada is quite shameful. It's tragic. There's rarely any good parts to it, but it's it's kind of like being in the matrix, though. You know, there's a, a blue pill and a red pill. And I think if we stay with sort of these easy histories of nationalism that maybe Canada, you know, in air quotes, conquered Indigenous people fairly, there's sort of a past that many Canadians and even the outside world haven't yet dealt with. They love to stay with the stereotypes, right? And we were talking before how every every week I'm confronted with someone who, you know, notices my facial, my cultural tattoos, and they talk to me about, you know, their Indianness or their great grandmother being a hundred percent Cherokee <laughs> princess. <laughs> and so I think there's still a romanticism that happens with Indigenous people. I can tell you so many stories of me traveling around the world, but especially Europe, where people have a a really one-dimensional understanding mm-hmm. of Indigenous people, that they're somehow relegated to the past, that they're not uh, nuanced in the future or in the present. Mm-hmm. So we're in this static mode of being dressed in buckskin and leather and you know, lots of fringe, lots of feathers, lots of yeah. leather. But as you can see, I don't, I'm not wearing that. My hair isn't long anymore. So I think the biggest thing if you're delving into Indigenous studies is to have those bold conversations. But what I mean by bold is be curious. Mm. Start with a beginner's mindset. 
and be open and prepare to be uncomfortable Yeah, because these aren't easy histories. My ancestors have gone through them and it's important for people to realize that these histories are a part of our cultural fabric and yeah, it's shameful, but there's <laughs> no one's doing anyone ever any favors by ignoring that type of history. So when I talk about that history of Canada and Indigenous people, I don't usually start with a deficit model. By that, I mean, we don't talk about all the bad things colonialism yeah. did, or the oppressive structures did. We talk about how Indigenous people were prior to contact and how they've changed, adapted, reimagined themselves, ourselves as Indigenous people who are sovereign to these lands. So I would start there. And yep. the interesting thing about Indigenous studies, and this quote comes from a Métis scholar, a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, and he said, Indigenous studies is unlike any other research area in the way that other research areas have complex ideas and concepts, and they, they simplify them for people. Indigenous studies is the exact opposite. You seemingly have this simple concept, but it's complexified by the history, the diversity of Indigenous peoples. So it's a really, it's an amazing place to be. It's an amazing space, because not only do we have Indigenous past and present to talk about, I mean, there's Indigenous futurisms as well. So it's a, it's a great place to be right now. I think so. I'm particularly interested, obviously, uh, and I'm so happy that you agreed to talk to me uh, about your expertise in uh, indigenous erotica and decolonizing sex. Because from a European perspective that I'm kind of trying to grappling with in the teaching uh, conversation that we're having here, of course, that's one of the taboo, and if I dare I use the word taboo here from, from psycho, psychoanalysis, one of the taboo topics. Laura and Stoller's work, for instance, she's a historian of, of empire. Recently, she turned to um, colonial intimacies and talked about how uh, uh, colonization governed, of course, uh, indigenous and, and native sexualities uh, and intimacies to begin with. So mm. that's... A, you know, a change in, in, in historiography that's that's fairly recent. And I like to teach literature and, you know, aesthetic texts that broach this topic. And I am so intrigued by the new kind of shift to eco-erotics, different engagements with the land. Uh, I'd like to quickly acknowledge Joshua Whitehead's recent memoir slash autobiography slash whatever you want to call it. I mean, autobiography mm -hmm. is already a, a colonizer term, so I'm, I'm kind of... Life writing, perhaps. It life, could writing. Be. life writing is good, yes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it's called uh, Making Love to the Land. It's uh, fascinating in uh, shifting, literally shifting the grounds. So maybe we can talk, we can start by talking about the essay that uh, we both read, or I read, preparing for this by uh, Melissa Nelson, Getting Dirty, which basically maps the field a little bit and uh, t starts by talking about her childhood memory, how she um, enjoyed eating, and how she had a sensual experience that led her to uh, design this uh, concept of a pansexuality, a, you know, a giving up of the body as being contained in a, in, a, in a body that's governed by whatever cultural roots you have, into this enjoyment of the world 
that is erotic uh, and sexual at the same time, but not in that terrible Puritan pornographic sense that related to colonizer culture. Yeah. And, you know, in the way when I talk about erotic, certainly sexuality can be a part of it, but mostly it's a sensuality, right? It's a sensuality of the senses and um, an uplifted sense of your surroundings and sense of self. And so it, it transcends that. And when I talk about Indigenous erotics, you know, uh, some of the two major um, influences on me was, in fact, Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic, as well as um, the Kama Sutra of Vatsanyana, yeah. which is yeah. one of the oldest texts of the erotic that you'll find. So I explain what erotics is and the difference between erotics and indigenous erotics. And I think you brought up Melissa K. Nelson's Eco-Erotics. It's an amazing article. And so she talks about that difference in how we see the land as something that's not disconnected from us. So when we look at the the immersion of Canada as a state, you know, you know, the French and English came here and so we think about land being tamed this ultimate wilderness being tamed being civilized somehow controlled and the difference in the ontologies between sort of european mindset and indigenous mindset is that that land isn't meant to be tamed mm -hmm. that land is just doing fine without humans and so we need to think about land as a caretaking thing rather than an ownership thing yeah. So when you switch that mindset or that worldview, then you'll notice that, you know, you're what you do to the land, the land does to you. And we're seeing that everywhere. I mean, yeah, we're seeing yeah. that everywhere with the, the waters and the land and our health as as humans on this earth of what we're doing to the land is really what it's doing back to us. So we haven't been doing a very good job caretaking. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think of Indigenous erotics, it's really about that interconnectedness of uh, Wakotuin and so being a part of that. So when Melissa K. Nelson talks about that, that sensuality of the land, you know, I don't know if anyone's listening, if they've ever had that experience when you're outside and you just feel that moss, you can smell the moss and the, the feel of the squishiness or the hard bark on the tree, the sound of the river the leaves falling down, like all of these things are a sensuality that may not be sexual at all, but there's a sensualness to it. And I, I think that's when I think about the erotic a lot uh, mm -hmm. in those types of moments on the land. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm with another human, right? It could be, it's, it's just about me and my senses. Mm. Yes. And one of the appealing diff uh, distinctions that I found preparing for our meeting today was the distinction between the the split between the sensual and the pornographic um, that happens in, in settler cultures. So that anything that is uh, sensual is all relegated to that, you know, pornographic industry, really, which then, of course, is fenced off in, in North American culture. It's fenced off. Sexuality is, is, is written aside and out of public life and of uh, being in the world mm -hmm. in a way where it's, it's adult and um, it's censored. And um, 
that is something that you know obviously dates to the you know puritan influence and uh, the regulation of the female body and uh, the panic over female body sovereignty and uh, um, you know sexual self expression so that's that's even more powerful than i thought it was and i i worked on um white feminisms quite a bit and uh, i was always uh, struck by how there's not so much talk about sexual self-determination un until the 20th century where you get to the radical feminists you know the suffragettes are really interested in political participation but they do it from a vantage point that you know perpetuates heteropatriarchy um they they're not interested in acting up um, so that's one of my one of my scholarly questions that i've been looking at but all the more uh intriguing is indigenous erotica and uh, that different approach to building a, a, a continuum between the sensuality of feeling the world and being in the world, being outside in the world to, you know, whatever sexual self-expression you mm. might be inclined to, to enjoy. You said in the beginning that you have a few poems um, that we can maybe share for our listeners. So they get an impression of what this, um, Uh, indigenous erotica does and how it works. <laughs> how it works. And if you'd like to, if you, I was wondering, I can read one too if you want me to, but I'm, I'm oh. sure uh, you're a good reader as well. So I don't know. I like the, there's one with the socks, uh, men leaving the socks on during oh, sex. Oh, yes. <laughs> you take that one. That's an awesome uh, Richard Van Camp one. Um, Richard is dog rib. He's a, a good friend of mine. He lives in Edmonton with uh, his wife and son. So I am going to read a Tennille Campbell one. Tennille Campbell is Cree Stolo Dakota, and she is doing her, currently doing her PhD on Indigenous sexualities and genders. So here goes. I'm tired of thin, pointy lips. Lips that cut and hiss. They're right for Chief Wahoo and Redskins. Lips that say they don't see race, everyone is equal, and won't I be their naughty squaw. I want thick lips, the taste of dry meat and glisten with butter, lips that kiss under pine trees and tell me they love me in accents from the land. I want Dene lips, Cree lips, Métis lips, Mohawk lips, and Anishinaabe lips. I want Mi'kmaq lips and Stolo lips. I want lips that are thick with stories and sweetness. Thick lips, moose lips. I want blueberry cloud lips. Thank you. <laughs> moose lips? That's interesting. Lips. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm imagining moose lips here. I didn't. I'm, I wasn't aware. I have to, you know, I don't have an image of moose lips before me right now, so I have to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> they're kind of like they have a like a horse face, so their lips are kind of. Big ish, yeah. Big and soft, and and yeah. uh, they do the swallowing. Well, the the reaching out with the lips too, right? Then they're like, right. That's right. You yeah. know, it's like the, the lips are a little bit like fingers when they yes. when I when I yes. when I work with or when I you know meet horses. That's what I what I like when I feed them carrots. They they have this little thing going where they moose are uh, like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. How did you get into indigenous erotics? There was a couple of things that happened. So the first thing is my mom used to read these 
true love magazines. They were like at the grocery store. They look like women's comic books, almost like they had these true love stories. And she saw me reading them uh, one day and she said, you can't read all of them. And I'm like, okay. So she put a big X on the ones I shouldn't be reading. Cause <laughs> they were a little, bit, a little <laughs> bit sassy, you know, a little cheeky. And of course that saved me time. I'm like, those are the ones I want to read. Yeah. <laughs> so that happened. And then, you know, I come from a, a long line of storytellers and we, we have a trickster in our culture called Wasaki Jack. And we're not allowed to tell Wasaki Jack stories uh, in the summer, only in the winter. And so I was in New Zealand and I was on the Marae uh, with a bunch of uh, Maori people. And they have a trickster named Maui. Mm -hmm. And so we stayed in this sacred space and it was like, you know, you eat there, you sleep there. It's made for like celebrations and things like that. So we started telling stories. And so I would tell Wasaki Jack stories and they would tell Maui stories and they were so similar. We have yeah. similar creation stories, similar flood stories, like just really similar stories. And as the night got later, the stories got a little more bouty, like a little more cheeky. Mm -hmm. And that's when my storytelling faltered. I didn't know any stories about Wasaki Jack getting into like trouble in these sexual escapades mm -hmm. or doing things that were risque or anything to do with sex. But Maui did, like they had all these <laughs> And then I thought like, well, my, I know all these Wasaki Jack stories, but I don't know those stories. You know, our trickster is just as selfish and gluttonous and, you know, as, as the next one. So why wasn't there any... And then I thought, well, maybe there are, and my family just doesn't know them. Mm -hmm. You know, there has been a history of colonialism in Canada and all ongoing, and, you know, residential schools happened that, you know, little children from four to 16 were taken away and put in schools yeah. over the course of many generations. And so, you know, the, the Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican churches all had very close-minded views about sexuality and sex. And so, you know, these if we had these types of stories, they were certainly not encouraged to be retold. <laughs> and so it, these Western, Euro-Western values and understandings about sex and sexuality was put under, and it was very mm -hmm. puritanical, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we carried that. And so I was in the middle of my PhD when I had this revelation of maybe instead of talking about, because it was on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, maybe instead of talking about that, I can also talk about body sovereignty. I can talk about agency because I started finding all these poems and stories and art on Indigenous sensualities, Indigenous erotics. And I'm like, there's something to this. And so I, yeah, so I changed my whole PhD and started talking about indigenous erotics as a, a way to have body sovereignty uh, for yeah. indigenous women and talking about agency and authority over oneself and really oftentimes a subversion Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people see, as you mentioned earlier, like Pocahontas, they have these ideas of indigenous mm -hmm. maidens, 
or Crohn's. And so to flip that and be subversive, talking about gender that's on a spectrum, sexuality can be on a spectrum. And now I think uh, for the most part in North America, we're coming to an understanding like, yeah, gender is on a spectrum. There's various kinds of sexualities. But Indigenous people knew this yeah. A millennia ago. Yeah. It wasn't even a question that there was only male and female. There was yeah. so many things in between, right? And and outside of that. So mm-hmm. it was really exciting to me as I got further into researching Indigenous erotics and how freeing that could be and how funny and cheeky it could be. And I know you're going to read a poem uh, by Richard Van Camp that's incredibly cheeky, that's really fun so we can Mm -hmm. talk about our bodies in a really fun enjoyable way like they were built for pleasure they were built Mm -hmm. for so many things so people get incredibly uncomfortable when they talk about it though Mm -hmm. exactly but I, i think that that discomfort is such a productive position to be in because it you know that's why i wanted to start with this weird self-assertion of my own bubbliness when it comes to our talk today and, and you know, talking about this because it's something that I've been, I, I'm struggling to find the right way to address this, maybe in the classroom, but also in my scholarship at large. But um, that's when it gets really interesting, you know. Yeah. yeah, I can be the 500th person person to write about, I don't know, Edgar Allan uh, Poe's The Raven, but I'm not interested in that kind of scholarship. I would rather do something that, you know, is um, is up and coming <laughs> in a double sense mm-hmm. right now. Um, so, yeah. so that's why I really enjoyed reading so much Richard Van Kemp's ironic uh, and funny story. And um, I would like to say... This, of course, has nothing to do with me, but I think many people um, can relate to this uh, in many ways. It doesn't it's I don't think this this conundrum is totally limited or or plays out only to indigenous um, indigenous sensualities. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a nice teaching moment here. Mm -hmm. So what to do when your Indian man doesn't take his socks off during sex anymore? (laughs) Ladies, I got some bad news. If your Indian man isn't taking his socks off during sex anymore, the show is over. It isn't because he remembers waking up in the tent on the trap line on those cold tundra mornings. I hate to break it to you, but he may be thinking of your cousin or your best friend. And those socks are the perfect metaphor for of cold feet and a man already gone, don't you think? What to do, you ask, where to go? Maybe a little louder. Maybe take the initiative again. Maybe head back to the land because sex in a tent with your legs just high is where it's at. Basics, baby. Basics. Back to the land will bring him around. Maybe. Or you can always insist he take off those socks. Remind him that men of all colors have burned down their houses, abandoned their vehicles, and quit paying taxes, just aching for your body. And if that doesn't work, tell him about that Inuk I seen in a swingers magazine who's from Iqaluit. This thirsty angel will show up at your doorstep with a bottle of barbecue sauce, and he'll pour it all over your toes, and he'll slurp it all off, too. He's a foot licker. He'll suckle those toes of yours like succulent shrimp, and make those happy num num sounds like your old man used to when he knew the sweetest canoe was between your legs. So 
maybe remind your man that he's not the only bull around and it's pretty easy to find that inok with a bottle of barbecue sauce or someone like him just fucking starving for you richard nice well done (laughs) (laughs) you you can hear me laughing in between the lines because it's so it's also a story you know it's not it's not your conventional poem obviously it's really you know also a good dressing down of the man and also an you know an an encouragement to the woman to say come on guy get yourself Mm -hmm. together um Yes, I like the move. Men, men, men of all colors are burning mm-hmm. down their house to be with you. Quit paying their taxes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the yeah. socks metaphor here. You said you had another poem. Would you like to read us one more? Yes, sure. This is another Tennille Campbell because I love her and think she's amazing. So one of the things that I love about Tennille is that she will uh, video old grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles reading these, these, her poems, and they get all embarrassed and they cover their mouths and it's just hilarious. (laughs) This one's called Thick Indigenous Women. Thick Indigenous Women are spilled beads and tangled thread worth the time to pick up and untangle. We are curves spilling stories against your lips. Our thighs are soft, muskeg, protecting good medicines. Our skin soft as tan hide. Caress us with care as you are touching our ancestors' wildest dreams. Thick indigenous women are the feast during a long winter. Canned raspberries, fresh bannock, warm butter leaking between your fingers. Come and eat. We hold joy in every round shoulder, laugh loudly, drawing all eyes. We squeeze against you and you hold us tight, smiling at your blessings. Because thick indigenous women, we are magic. And if you aren't careful, someone else will pick up spilled beads and untangle threads. Ooh, more competition here. That's, That's right. I like this competition element. I mean, of course, it's a wonderful celebration of body positivity. It's also such a settler term, um, but I think there's a inch in there. But yeah. obviously, I mean, it's it's there for the taking, and it's not the rape fantasy here that plays out, but the, you know, female... There's an agency in her words. There's an authority where there is a control that she has, even though she's offering herself. There's a control, uh, I think, that subverts that sort of unconsensual sex. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And there's so many play play notes in between, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the extremes of uh, consensus and uh, seduction. Mm Mm-hmm. So what I really like about that and why I loved Audre Lorde and I see these similarities because Audre Lorde was a, a strong black feminist, uh, lesbian writer, social power <laughs> woman. Mm-hmm. I want to read a, a quote from her and make those connections with Richard's uh, poem and Tennille Campbell's poem. And this is a quote from Audre Lorde. And she says, our erotic knowledge empowers us becomes a lens through which we scrutinize all aspects of our existence, forcing us 
to evaluate those aspects honestly in terms of the relative meaning within our lives. And this is a grave responsibility projected from within each of us not to settle for the convenient, the shoddy, or the conventionally expected, nor the merely safe, end quote. And I think about how Indigenous women um, in Canada and the States have, you know, gone missing or been murdered, you know, 25 times more than Mm -hmm. any other woman in Canada anyway. And how the erotic in this sense, you know, gives back that agency. And a lot of people in Canada, and it's dying down a little bit more during Halloween, we have people dressing up as Pocahontas or Pocahontas in these skimpy little feather and leather dresses. And they think, well, what's wrong with that? But when we look at we look at how many Indigenous women have gone missing and murdered, the connection between making our culture somehow a one-dimensional caricature, you know, it dehumanizes us. Yeah. And so, you know, this is why those types of costumes aren't, aren't a good thing to wear or a good thing to prance around in mm-hmm. because Indigenous women are so much more than one-dimensional characters, right? Mm-hmm. So I love when Audre Lorde talks about this, not settling for the convenient or the shoddy or the merely safe to step outside of that. And not just for Indigenous women, but all women. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And here I'm going to uh, make a little bracket and acknowledge, acknowledging is, a, is the wrong word here, but I want to quickly talk about this particular European or German take on uh, Native American cultures mm. that is based on romantic misconstrual. And you mentioned this in the beginning, uh, based on the fantasy of a white Dresden writer um, who um, wrote Western romances without, first of all, without hardly ever going and uh, who has been overly um, successful in the German cultural archive um, and who has given space to fantasies of of white male self-assertion and playing around, playing Indian, so to speak. Um, I don't want to spend so much time on this because uh, the airtime that we have today is uh, too scarce for this, but I just want to say to listeners who are maybe from the cultural realm that I am working on and working in that is that is another way of layering on to the native stereotypes and 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 taking away agency so and i don't mean, i don't want to even say the guy's name because i'm so bored uh, <laughs> by this <laughs> cultural meaning so it is um, that's another that's another impetus for me to be doing this episode with you today I want to really, really talk to you about your contemporary project that you're doing, TP Conversations. This is a uh, show that happens that lists uh, sexual confessions and maybe uh, cheeky show numbers at Toronto, right? If I understand this right. And I want to, I want to particularly ask you about the TP uh, context and uh, how you translate the indigenous erotics into this playful self-assertive agency mm. and an artistic um, expression of body sovereignty in the contemporary popular culture industry um, yes. so maybe you can talk to me about this or talk to our listeners about this and um, 
I would love to see such a show, but it seems they're not taped. So <laughs> if ever I get to go to one, I would love that. But yeah, that's that's my other question that I have. So do you yeah. do you tape them and can I can I watch it sometimes because it's so intriguing as a as an artistic project? I think the the last one we did was online because we had to um anyway, um I'll get to that, but it's uh it's yeah. TP Confessions. Uh, and a TP for those of you that don't know, uh, is a it's a conical shape, usually made out of lodgepole pine and uh, um, buffalo skins, and it's what uh, plains people usually lived in uh, on the plains. This it was a, all indigenous people did not live on the plains. Canada is a big place, lots of different kinds of dwellings. So this was uh, yeah. Cree, Blackfoot, anyone on the plains would um, have a TP. So TP Confessions, it actually comes from a Austin, Texas a group of social justice warriors and feminists. They started something called Bedpost Confessions. So I have to mention them because it wasn't completely an idea that we came up with. Mm -hmm. So we're friends with them. And they had created a space for people to come enjoy, you know, uh, spoken word, poetry, burlesque acting, any kinds of anything performative, uh, singing, dancing that had, you know, a sensuality to it or a sexuality to it. And so Kim Tallbear thought, came up with the idea, hey, how about we have something like that here in Edmonton? I was in Edmonton at the time. So we became co-producers along with Kirsten Lindquist, and we're all Indigenous women. So we wanted to create a space that would celebrate our Indigenous sensualities and sexualities in the erotic, but also creating a place where people, a safer place that people could feel like they could discuss taboo or what you said, taboo topics, right? We started, I think, in 2009 in Edmonton, and we've had 10 shows in and around Canada and the States, Seattle, Toronto, all over. And uh, so the funnest part is the audience participation. Mm -hmm. So we have something called Confession Fairies, and mm -hmm. so they have That's these big great. rainbow wings, and they walk around the audience, and they hand out these little cards that says, I confess, and you can do more than one confession. The audience writes on the little card anonymously, I confess. And then they hand it back. And then the two MCs, usually me and a guest from that territory or someone from that territory. So we read these in between the acts on stage. And so we read out these confessions. There's no names or anything, but yeah. And it's, it's hilarious. It's, um, it's a beautiful space. I've learned a lot. I mean, I wrote my whole PhD on indigenous erotics, and there are terms that I didn't even know, like terminology. <laughs> and I'd be reading these cards on stage going, oh, I, I have no idea what that means because everyone's <laughs> laughing. I'm like, what does it mean? I don't get it. So even I was learning um, mm -hmm. some new words and yeah. <laughs> It's not only funny, but it's, um, we know laughter is medicine, right? And it's, it's yes. healing, but it gives people a chance to, you know, hear these confessions and go, okay, so I'm, what I'm doing, isn't that odd or out of place? And so it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful space. And we've seen mm. some amazing acts. 
uh, January Rogers. Uh, she's a Mohawk here in um, Hamilton. She did this beautiful act with honey, all of this honey, like it just, it was, it was just glorious to watch. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, she worked really, yeah. we've had burlesque, we've had um, spoken word, poetry, interpretive dance. It's been, it's been really amazing. Now that you're talking about it, I don't, I also think it's not something to be recorded. Because the audience participation with the confession and the confession fairies in the act of kind of semi-publicizing your your practices or your maybe also your concerns, and then having a kind of a collective response to that, I think that's the the artistic part of this that allows for healing maybe but also just you know agency and self-assertion so um mm -hmm. i like that this is something that you can't it seems to me it, it, it seems to me like something that you can't uh, record and play over and over and over and repeat mm. because that's going to make it reproducible and that's not what i think this would be I, i i would love to be a part of this sometime um, <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs> um it's a but, lot of fun Yeah. 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 And I think the artistic part of it, you know, to have performances, to have um, many people coming together in this and um, for basically entertainment, uh, oh, but absolutely. also taking entertainment to that other other kind of level where it can be healing and cathartic in the best sense of the word. Yeah. It's, it's super appealing. And I think it speaks very well to what I understand as Indigenous erotica and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it would be amazing to have a show like that in a place in europe that has misconceptions about indigenous people and romanticizes <laughs> indigenous people it would be an eye-opener definitely mm -hmm. for people are like well mm -hmm. indigenous people aren't supposed to be doing that where's where's the feathers where's the leather don't get me wrong those things are great But there were much more than just yes, that. Yes, yes. And these yeah. these shows would definitely be a shocker, I think, in some places. But a good shocker, I think. Well, maybe if you know if we if you find a patron that would like to bring us there, we'd certainly think about going there. That would be fun. Let's see where this where this goes in the future. I think this is also a good perspective for for future tasks for American studies, maybe, or for um, mm. you know. Um, incorporating performance cultures and uh, opening up the European paradigm of settler yeah. colonial performances and, and, and theatrics. From an academic perspective, I can relate to it, but also from a perspective of uh, the question of where where can American studies go to acknowledge a settler colonial origins and you know make more room and space and allow for other mm -hmm. epistemologies to surface without the heaviness. So, so it's important to note, walking back through our conversation, it's important to note that you start with uh, pre-contact cultures and then you acknowledge the violence and the shame that happened, but the celebration of, um, of joy and of agency, of sovereignty is so key. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's my pedagogical model, really. It's a kiss, kick, kiss. 
you start off with a kiss, you know, and then there's some hard truths that we have to understand and, and wrap our heads around. And then there's the kiss. There's the celebratory resurgence and reimagining of Indigenous peoples and culture and sensualities yeah. and erotics. Yeah. So kiss, kick, kiss. That's, yeah. Kiss, kick, kiss. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. <laughs> that's a lovely, I think it's also a lovely end point to our wonderful talk that we had thank you so much for being my guest thank you for you know sharing commenting on my bubbly questions here and um, <laughs> thank you for bringing the poetry and the work to this mm, you're welcome it was a pleasure it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh yeah who knows tp confessions goes to berlin i don't know it should thank you very much for coming this concludes uh, our November session of Lady Fiction for National Native American Heritage Month. But I think as we've seen in the conversation, it goes beyond the national into the sensual and to the land. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.